Today's sermon is on 40502. When I moved to Lexington back in 2004, there was one thing and one thing for sure. You wanted to live in 40502. You needed to live in 40502. You had to live in 40502. 40502 was the zip code. People wore it like a status symbol of power. There was no need to tell people that you what kind of car you drove when you lived in 40502 because they just knew. The best schools were in 40502, the best restaurants, the most extravagant stores. If you lived in 40502, you didn't have to send your kids to private school because the best schools were in 40502. 40502 was not 40503. 40503 was that suburban zip code, that place that you chose to move out to when you wanted a bigger house or a bigger land. If you lived in 40503, people knew that you just wanted to live in 40502 but couldn't afford it. 40502 was not 40507. 40507 was where the downtowners lived. The beatniks and the racially diverse and the artists and the gay people was also where the people who lived in shelters were and used addresses like our church's address so that they could have somewhere to send mail when they applied for jobs. In fact, I'm not really sure in 2004 if you lived in 40502 that you lived there without being white and having inherited generational wealth and being heterosexual and married with children and loved country clubs. 40502 was everything. Power, prestige. I mean, after all, it was where Coach Calipari was. The day my former husband and I moved into one of probably less than 100 rental houses in 40502, we knew we had made it. And I was keenly aware when we moved to 40503 or 40504 that we had not. Today we meet the disciples on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus has just finished telling them about how he will suffer and be killed and on the third day rise again. And the scripture tells us that the disciples were arguing on the way about who was the greatest. I wonder what it looked like. Did it look like zip code or who had the most decorated house or the fanciest tunic? Who was the last person to eat dinner with a Herod or had the last drink with a great high priest? How many camels did one have in their family field? Could one prove their status by neighborhood or zip code or being the greatest or most powerful? These are the questions I imagine that the disciples were asking along the way. I mean, I'd like to think they were disciples of Jesus and had given up all that they had to follow this guy. But the truth of the matter is they were probably asking the same questions that go through our minds when they said who is the greatest. Forget that Jesus has just mentioned that the way of love is through suffering and a walk through death and through resurrection. The disciples are worried about what really matters. And we all know that what really matters is power. 
You might remember that last week we talked about Mark 8. And we read there a similar conversation was going on there. Where Jesus told the disciples that the Son of Man would undergo suffering and be rejected. He would be killed and three days later rise again. And you might remember that last week Peter told Jesus that this is all nonsense. When he takes them aside. And that Jesus told to him to get behind him and called him out as Satan. And then Jesus told Peter that he was setting his mind on worldly things, things of men, earthly things, not heavenly things or divine things or godly things or good things. And Jesus tells the disciples, whoever wants to follow me must take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it and whoever wants to lose their life for the sake of the gospel will save it. Jesus calls the disciples to give up their lives. This same pattern happens in the next chapter, in chapter 10, when the disciples are not understanding again, and Jesus explains again this life, death, and resurrection thing, that he will be delivered to the religious leaders, the people will mock him and flog him, and three days later he will rise again. And James and John, sons of Zebedee, aren't as much concerned about the story Jesus is telling as they are concerned about where they are going to sit at the table. They go to Jesus in the midst of his story and say, put me at the right hand and put me at the left. And Jesus reminds them that the way of life in which they think they are signing up is not one of power, but one in which follows the way of suffering. This is the same cycle we read today, that Jesus predicts his death, the disciples don't get it, the disciples ask for more power, and then Jesus uses instruction to redirect them. This is what's happening in today's scripture on the road yet again to Jerusalem, where the disciples do not get it, do not understand what Jesus is saying, and so they keep walking, and they keep talking, just as they did in chapter 8, and just as they will in chapter 10, about worldly things, and human things, and power, and prestige, and who is the greatest. I mean, I would like to think they're the disciples. They might be talking about who has the better uh, curriculum, or vita, or resume, as to who has done the most deeds of power, who has done the most for the gospel. But I don't think they were all that different from us. I mean, they've been given into the same sorts of things that we have. They've been sold the same sorts of bill that we're sold. That to be the best is to go to the most important dinners and live in the best houses and have the most fancy homes and be friends with the most influential people. I imagine that when James and Zebedee, James and John, sons of Zebedee, were asking Jesus to sit at the right hand and his left hand at the dinner, that they were expecting some great state affair, some presidential thing with all sorts of powerful people there. And instead, Jesus invites them to a last supper in a borrowed attic where the servants don't show up and they do all the work themselves. Disciples weren't any different than us who expected goodness and greatness and power to come from things of zip codes and power and prestige. 
We still argue about who has been at the last most fanciest event, who has the fastest car or the best house, or whose ego, ideas, or thoughts are the most important. All of that makes us just a little bit obsessed with power and incapable of understanding, comprehending, or accepting the way. Often we're focused on what is the best seat of the power when Jesus is focused on the servant position or our zip code when Jesus is focused on relationship. Perhaps we're focused on the finest cut of veal when Jesus is offering us simple bread and wine. We, like the disciples, don't often get it. And so Jesus, as Jesus does in a loving but blunt way, pulls a chair into the middle of the room and into the middle of the disciples and sits it down. And in that chair, he says, this, this is what you should be focused on. Not money or prestige or power or asking who the greatest is, but this. And in that chair, he places a small child, the most vulnerable among us, takes the child into his arms and says, Whoever welcomes me welcomes this child. Whoever wants to be last must be servant of all. Jesus didn't put a dignitary in the chair. Jesus didn't put someone who lived in 40502 in the chair. He took the very person in the room that had the least power and was the most vulnerable and stuck him in the chair and said this. This is who is your focus. This is the kingdom of God. I wonder for us who Jesus would pull that chair into our room and sit the chair down and who Jesus would sit with and redirect our attention to. I don't know who that would be. I think about Omar of Aleppo, who was about the fourth station in Stations of the Cross that Cassandra drew for us. Uh, that showed that little Syrian refugee in the ambulance after bombing happened and showed Mary and Joseph as carrying that child. I don't know, maybe the most vulnerable right here among us is someone displaced for their parents, separated from their parents. Perhaps an assaulted woman or a person on the run or someone in a shelter or someone who is poor. I don't know who for you is placed in that chair, but I knew know that Jesus is saying, this is the kingdom of God, the most vulnerable, the least of these, and here I am holding that person and redirecting you. For I am here in this chair, and I am hungry, and you gave me food. And in this chair, you gave me drink when I was thirsty. And in this chair, you were a, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And in this chair, I was sick, and you took care of me. In this chair, I was in prison, and you visited me. This chair is where I am, and for those that you did, to those in this chair, you did to me. For as you did the least of these, you do unto me. I don't know who needs to show up in our chair today. For 40502ers and a youth minister who lived in 4052, many people took that chair for us. Sometimes it was a young woman who came to us in traditional housing from a bad family situation who'd lived in poverty all of our life and who taught us how to love. 
Sometimes it was guests at Room at the Inn, a movable homeless shelter that we came to our church once a week whose men we got to know. Sometimes it was kids in a Belizean jungle on mission trip, and sometimes that chair was ourselves. When we were broken, when we were at the end of our rope, when we needed to sit down in the middle of the youth group and tell our own stories of pain and how we needed to be healed. Jesus comes to us and sits in the chair where the most vulnerable are and shows us to love the people with him. This is the way of love, to love those who have the deepest need for love, the most hurting among us, the most vulnerable among us, the most poor among us. This is the way of life and the way of love which Jesus demonstrates and dies for us. This is the place in which love and life and resurrection and new beginnings are found in relationship with us and Jesus and in the middle of our lives together.